Well, I, when we say start, I think we should open it up with your apology to me for hurting my feelings. Um, and on the last episode, I was praising Coach Malone, and Derek cut me off. And it's been a source <laughs> spot in our relationship so far. So, Derek, this is a great time for you to explain yourself, sir. So, my argument was that Jared Bednar is a better coach than Michael Malone. And so far, Bednar is 3-1 and one in the games that he's played in the bubble. I don't know exactly what Malone is, but I do know that Malone has intentionally lost three games already in the bubble. Yeah, yeah I think Malone is now 3-4. and four. And after doing a deep, deep dive on the Google search, Bednar actually is more handsome as well. <laughs> he looks like the president of a Eastern European country. Um, I think part of it is like, so four years ago, the Avs had the worst season in modern history, <laughs> which was kept alive because the season got shortened, and so the Red Wings could not finish out their horrible season. So the Avs still hold the title. And then they've made the playoffs three years in a row with the hope that maybe they can go one more round each year. They lost in the first round last year. They lost in the second round, or two years ago, they lost in the second round last year, and maybe they could go three or to the Stanley Cup this year. And so I think that that, to me, that's the positives of Bednar. What What is it about Malone that makes you feel like he is such a good coach? Well, it's, we're, you know, we're storylines over just the stats. And, like, we look at trajectory of both teams that three years ago, Neither team were contenders or really exciting. Like It was truly a time where you could just talk about the Broncos quarterback carousel, and that was the only interesting thing. Um, the storyline with Malone is why it's been a redemption arc, is that for so long we didn't like him for now looking back kind of petty reasons. It's really hard to be a good coach in any sport, um, but especially the NBA, especially the Western Conference. Uh, but Malone has continually improved the Nuggets. This year was going to be kind of hard to tell if the season played out the way, like, in full, would the Nuggets have a better record than they did last season. But he's improved them every year and made it to the second round of the playoffs. I don't know if, I don't know if my expectations right now are that the Nuggets now have to get to the Western Conference Finals for this to be a successful season. But really, he's he's given us all of our favorite players so far. Like He is responsible for Nikola Jokic. Well, is he, though? Because he did not want to play Jokic forever. Where it was clear that Jokic was the better player, he wasn't starting Jokic. This whole year, we've been like, Michael Porter Jr. needs to play more. And Malone didn't do it until he had to. And then we were all rewarded for thinking that Michael Porter Jr. should play more. Well, I think Malone is like the stern father or he's that trope of the mean guy who cares for you. And so by him not playing Jokic when it was clear that he should, it gave Jokic more of an edge. I don't know if Jokic is as clutch if he got coddled by Malone. And I don't know if Michael Porter Jr. is averaging 23 points in the bubble without having to earn every single minute. And that's like, that's Malone. And I and I know I was going to, well, Jamal Murray came out with more um, potential and expectations. And Coach has done really well by him. Uh, well, and I mean, I think we need to see in the playoffs. Like, Murray is sort of the key right here, I feel like, where if, 
if he actually has a good playoffs, because he had a bad playoffs last year, like he had some moments, he would have quarters. Yeah. But he didn't put a full game together once in the two series. Yeah, true, true. Um, I think that that's a big one. I also, I'm with you. I like I like Malone a lot better, but I don't think he's managed the team well. And the one problem that I have is the offense every year seems to be a little worse. Like he is continues to stifle what should just be a creative flow of interesting players to try to fit into a system. It happens every year. And we're out of it now because they haven't had a real team. Like, you know, like the personnel has been all over the place. He had the bull bull plumbly lineup play so many minutes. Yeah. Like I think I'm not saying he's a bad coach, but saying he's definitely better than Bednar and also saying he's definitely better than Bud Black is just a it's a huge reach for someone that hasn't hasn't proven it. Like let's Oh, say, I didn't know this was a three man race. Well, I'm just saying saying Bud Black the most successful manager in Rocky's history is <laughs> just doesn't even doesn't even get to the conversation also is uh Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> oh, but, or, well, I don't have the well, okay, Bud Bud Black definitely deserves the conversation right now with uh National League West first place Rockies. Um he would be he's already the only manager to get them to the playoffs twice. <laughs> that is not <laughs> that is a low bar to climb onto the pedestal. But sure, but explain to me more Bednar because yeah. Bednar I only have press conferences and not understanding hockey enough to know why is he your front runner. So as best coach in Denver. One of the things that was interesting when Bednar took over, so he took over for Waugh because Waugh quit right before the season started. And they had to scramble and find a coach. And they were like, this guy just won the minor league championship for the AHL. Uh, Colorado for a long time had this weird flirtation with Columbus where everything Columbus did, the Avs just wanted them. That's why we have Matt Calvert. There are a couple other players over the years that we've just, they were on Columbus who has never really done anything we want them and so bednar <laughs> was the columbus uh, affiliate coach they brought him in and immediately his system was so interesting to watch in training camp because he really has a puck moving system where the goal is to get the puck up the ice as fast as possible which played really well into their speed game and it's just been sort of a transformation of the whole team from where they went from playing man-to-man defense, which never really worked under Waugh, to having a solid defensive structure, to putting his players in a position to win with the lines. And, like, the lines, sort of like rotation in basketball, are really where a coach has to figure things out. And he has chosen a lot to split up the top line, which he knows is good, to try to spread up the, out the talent. He made a tough call where they bring in Burakovsky to maybe be that third winger on the top line, move Landis Cog down or a top six winger. It's not going well in the bubble, so he decides to move Burakovsky down to the third line, move Nemestikov up to the first line, who hasn't um, been on the team very long. He was acquired at the trade deadline, and that worked for a while. And then yesterday, when the Avs were playing the Coyotes, things aren't going well. They score a power play goal. It would make sense for... Bednar to go back to having the line spread out because now they don't need the goals. He goes back to the top line. They end up getting the third goal right after all of this and breaks it wide open. Okay, so like what I'm hearing is Bednar has an adaptability factor. Yeah. One that we constantly criticized Malone for. It's like 
you have to change something up here. Okay, from that perspective, and the fact that Avs are number two seed in uh, the West, but they're favorites right now to yeah, win they're, the Stanley Cup. They're five to one favorites to win the Cup, which is the best in the league. And yeah, I think that you're right. It is that adaptability, and it is just like he's he's willing to be unconventional when it, it the situation calls for it. He's already announced that he's going to use two goalies this weekend. The Avs play a playoff back-to-back, which is unheard of in normal times. <laughs> and he's already said, we're going to play Grubauer in one game. We're going to play Francois in another game. No hockey coaches, first of all, announce it. And many would never think about doing that in the playoffs. For, and like to try to understand how unconventional that is. Like, one of the most important positions in all sports is a solid goalie, especially in the playoffs. Is this wisdom or is it madness? And does it help the Avs? Well, there's a, a saying in hockey that is if you have two goalies, you have no goalies. <laughs> that you need to have just one guy who is the king. Yeah. And the fact that Bednar has allowed even through this whole system, to be like, we're going to have two goalies, it makes us better, it is against conventional wisdom. It may fail. Like, it may fail spectacularly. Francois might go in there, be terrible, and then Grubauer is so upset that he loses it all, too. <laughs> but right now, I just think he he's hitting all of the right buttons. And, you know, it is hard comparing the styles because you don't have to work the refs as much in the... NHL is the NBA. There isn't really that option. You're mm. not on the floor. You're behind a bench. And that's something that Malone has had to work on. And it's not, I think Malone can rise to that level. It's just, we need to see more. Because I, I still think, like, let's say you put the average NBA coach in there. How good do you think the Nuggets are right now? Are you saying they're not a top four seed with this talent? That's a nasty question. Um, that makes me upset to think about. Um, okay, from that perspective, well, I don't. Let's say Alvin Gentry was the Nuggets head coach. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alvin Gentry is a good dude. I think the Nuggets are probably a six seed. Um, oh, I get like the love affair with Malone is the time passing and. The relationships he's developed with players, mm -hmm. especially for a small market team that's never going to be great in free agency. Um, I think he's just a personable dude, and our players seem happy to play for him, mm -hmm. uh, which especially coming off of the Brian Shaw debacle where the man banned cell phones and pizza from the locker room. Malone just has... Like a sternness, but also like a care that you just want to see. You want he, he's like a, a cool principal at a school, and that is not very sophisticated sports <laughs> analysis. <laughs> but I don't care. That's the hill that I will die on. But I am really excited to watch the Abs in the bubble and to see it's been like a meteoric rise from the worst team ever to. Now, like especially one of the most potent first lines in the game and electric play, many different personalities, especially if you think of like someone like Kadri, as we talked about mm -hmm. um, previous episodes, that all of them work so well under Bednar. 
who's an adaptable guy who also just kind of seems like super stoic and not super personable. So I'll 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 step back. I'll accept your apology, but I'll also say it's okay, dude. I will say this. If both the Avs and the Nuggets lose in the first round this year and next year, both coaches will be fired. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, <laughs> as good as we might think they are, both of them will be fired, and Bud Black will still be here if the Rockies don't make the playoffs the next two years, unless he decides to quit. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, and there's one more thing that we can both agree on. Vic Fangio is the worst of the four coaches in Denver right now. Sure. Oh, well, it's cool that he's worse not by his own merits, but just because we have better examples, like bigger, better examples. Uh, we're in solid hands, but just want to recap. The Avs won their first playoff game against the uh, Phoenix Coyotes. Arizona. They changed their name to Arizona a couple years ago. They play in Glendale, ah. which is the same place that the Arizona Cardinals play. Mm -hmm. So they decided to change the name to Arizona. The team that is always threatening to be moved because they have no fans and they never really have an ownership group. Um, if you can't tell, we're outside again for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you might hear some cars or motorcycles. Um, but immersive experience. So Arizona Coyotes, 11 best, best team in the West coming into the bubble experience. Um, ended up getting an upset in their first round, so they're playing the Avalanche. Known as a slowdown team and really uh, pride prided on their defensive ability, top five uh, defensive team in the NHL, but the Avs were sixth in the NHL in defense. So the disparity is not quite there because the Avs, with one of the best offenses in the league, come in first two and a half periods. The Avs are dominating in shots. The game ends 37 to 14 in shots. That is the fewest shots the Avs have given up in the history of the franchise going back to Quebec. They've never only given up 14 shots before. So the defense is rolling. They're getting all the shots. But Darcy Kemper, old nemesis from the Minnesota series six years ago, who helped steal that series from the Avs. Was that six years ago? Six years ago, 2014. My, my God. <laughs> um, playing strong. Uh, the Avs get, take a penalty late, end up killing that off, I guess, within like the last 12 minutes. Then they get their own power play, score on that power play, it was a similar goal to the goal that Nazem Kadri scored um, to end that Blues game. He was in front of the net, able to put it in. It was very big, bing bang. Ten seconds later, they score again. JT Comfer. They're suddenly up two nothing. Six and a half minutes left, and then a minute later, all these goals happen within a minute and 23 seconds. The top line gets a goal. Landis God gets crushed, able to get the puck over to McKinnon, who finds Rantanen alone in front of the net. And suddenly they're up 3-0 and cruising to their first victory. And that's so cool. I mean, the Avs have had now a few wins that are like, okay, we belong here. Whereas all of the Nuggets games in the bubble have been up and down. You know, you get three full periods from the Avs in a few games. We've not gotten more than like two and a half full quarters from the Nuggets. Um, and it's never the first quarter. Never the first <laughs> quarter. I miss – yeah, we had talked about, like, the first half of a basketball game doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. But every once in a while, you can just feel good about it, and I would miss those feelings. So it's a good win. I wanted to focus for a second on Eric Johnson, defenseman for the Avalanche, number one defenseman for years. 
He was traded to the Avs in 2011. So we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Eric Johnson joining the Colorado Avalanche next spring. And he's had to go through all of the rebuilding. He was around for the Joe Sacco years. He was around for the Wah years and now the Bednar years. He has seen Duchesne leave. He's seen, you know, the worst and the best when they were the number one team in, in the West. So it's been just all over the place for Eric Johnson. And now he's no longer the high-profile defenseman. He's been moved basically to the second or third pairing, depending on the day, but has eight shots in that game last night, including an assist, and really seems determined to help this team win. This is the guy that you root for. Who's, he was a number one pick for St. Louis. They ended up trading him because it wasn't working out. Like, never as good of a player as anyone hoped he would be. Mm. But an, an American hero in a lot of ways, like, plays for Team USA and a guy you can root for. So in, like, guys that may not have a lot more chances to get their first Stanley Cup, Eric Johnson's at the top of that list. Nice. So he won't be, like, a Ray Bork raising the No, not, the not cup, one of the greatest defensemen of all time. Not even one of the greatest defensemen in Avalanche history. <laughs> but, like... A guy that deserves to win for all that he's given to the Avalanche over the years. Sure. Like, the type, the same way that fans feel like, I've rooted for this team for so long, I deserve this. He's a guy who wouldn't be a standout on any given season, but the cumulative, it's like, yes, let's, we wouldn't raise his uh, jersey into the rafters, but, you know, Play a song for him or something. And he's the longest tenured Avalanche. He beats Atlantis Cog by a few months mm. from that draft. So it, it really is a interesting situation and just also really hard to believe he's been on the team for 10 years because that was such a big trade at the time. Uh, the Avs gave up Chris Stewart and Kevin Shattenkirk, so it was quite a, quite a trade at the time to try to shake things up. Uh, the Avs play, as I mentioned, back-to-back this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and then they play Monday. Uh, there's a chance that, like, if they play all the games like this, there's a pretty good chance that it could be a four- or five-game series. Mm. But, of course, it's the playoffs, and Darcy Kemper is the kind of goalie that can steal a game or two. And, you know, the Avs can get in their own way. But uh, really good start from the Avs. If it was the first time they've won the first game in the last three years. They lost the first game to Nashville, lost the first game to the Flames, 4 nothing, which was just a heartbreaking game, and then they won the next four. And they lost the first game to San Jose. So winning that first game, since they lost two out of those three series, is a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. And then after the Avs game last night, of course, the Denver Nuggets played three-quarters of a basketball game against the Los Angeles Clippers. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. So the there's one more game left in the bubble for seeding, but the Nuggets are now locked into the third seed and will be playing the Utah Jazz um, for the playoffs. And of course the conspiracy theories have started on line of did the Nugget are the Nuggets tanking for seeding? Like they did last year. Like, like it's not like this is like a new thing. They did last year, but it was like way more apparent and it worked out in amazing fashion to avoid playing the Houston Rockets. But like looking at the bubble, I don't know why anyone thinks the Jazz or the Thunder or the Rockets or anyone are a safer bet for a team that has been perpetually injured and has not gotten into a full flow yet. 
it, it's a weird strategy. I will say, so So the way that they lost, of course, is they didn't play any of the starters in the fourth quarter. It was the third game where they've kept out starters. One game it was really just Jokic, but Murray wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. And then they also did this against the Lakers. They were competitive, especially in the first two games, where it was like with five minutes left, they would have won if they would have just put in anybody else. Um, I mean, the, the Clippers... Wasn't that impressed with the Clippers. Like, I think the Nuggets can make it a series against them, which a lot of people don't. But it was it's still frustrating. And the thing is, they could have just not played anyone in the first quarter and got in the same number of minutes. So saying that this was a this was just a save minutes thing, there are ways to save minutes and still win that game. Yeah. But for me, I'm just like Malone has at least played the long con if that's if it really was tanking for seeding. In that he said, like, we're, we've made it to the playoffs. This was before the bubble started. That that's what our focus is going to be. And I just, it's interesting, like, watching Michael Porter Jr. play and like, okay, this is an NBA starter level talent. But the dude still just has Bambi legs sometimes. And you, like, see him, like, go up for rebounds or just, like, he f- ends up on the ground so much that every time it's just like, Okay, yep, I knew it. Nug life is back. He's hurt. <laughs> and so from that perspective, just getting Murray back, Jokic, who's been the workhorse for seasons, I'm all right with them, with him not playing starters in the fourth if it really doesn't matter, just so we can maybe be healthy for the start of the Utah series. There's rumblings that we may have a Gary Harris siding on the court actually playing meaningful minutes. Um which is a weird one. I don't even know if I like should feel excited about that. It's better than watching Tory Craig chuck up threes. But I'm interested in this matchup because that was the only game in the last several that Nuggets starter stayed in the whole time and absolutely had to. Went to double overtime. Against the Utah Jazz. Against the Utah Jazz. And uh, Donovan Mitchell, of course, lit it up. But I've been arguing with people on Reddit because they're feeling confident. And I'm like, why why on earth do you feel good about Utah Jazz, who have always been the most, uh, well, always, since the Nuggets have been <laughs> good, have been the most difficult team for the Nuggets to play? Well, and I mean, I would say, like, if you were going to say, like, who is the Nuggets' historical rival, it is Utah, just because there have been, you know, Utah was so good in the Northwest when they had, you know, the Carl Malone years you know jerry sloan was the coach there forever Mm -hmm. and you know when the nuggets were good in the 80s like the utah jazz were someone they were playing a lot so i think that that is like it is like the closest thing to a natural rival also just proximity wise that the nuggets have yeah i mean it's interesting because of the proximity because the rocky mountain teams that get no love or coverage there's a solidarity thing and after the portland series i just hate portland fans way more just wait. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's, uh. Do you remember the last time we played Utah in the playoffs? It. So I'm going to take you back, and it's going to be very painful. Okay, let's go. The year was 2010. George Carl had cancer, oh, stopped yeah. coaching, mm-hmm. and basically things devolved so badly that Melo stopped playing by the end of the Utah series and then demanded a trade right afterwards. So this is a team that has literally destroyed the franchise before in a first-round matchup that they were not favored to win. Well, and that's why I'm <laughs> terrified is because I, Utah has more of an interesting storyline 
being the team that brought coronavirus <laughs> to sports and stopped sports for four year, uh, four months. And I think Donovan Mitchell is going to be the marquee star that they're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And they're just a really good team. Like Quinn Snyder, I'm biased already, but he's a terrifying human and a solid coach. And the a healthy-ish Utah team matches up really well against a healthy-ish Denver team in that Rudy Gobert knows how to stop Jokic, at least from the scoring aspect, and they're a physical team, and Donovan Mitchell, when get, getting hot, is super hard to stop, whether you have Torrey Craig or an 85% healthy Gary Harris. I just would have rather played Dallas or um, the Thunder. I think teams that just don't have the same depth, or especially Jokic just knows how to beat up on their big men better than Gobert. Yeah, I mean, he he made Adams look crazy. Like, it, it was just crazy the clinic he was putting on on Adams when they were playing the Thunder. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think you're right in that, like, you don't – this is why you don't try to get seeding. Because if they lose this series, you second-guess all of this. <laughs> and, like, that's one of the reasons that, like, I think just from a competitive nature, like, you might say, like, it would be better to play this team. But let's say Luka Doncic gets hurt in the first quarter of the first game. Then you're saying, like, of course it's twenty twenty hindsight, but, like, this is why you don't try to tempt fate in sports. Yeah, that's what that's what it is. It's... And maybe it's a superstitious thing, like may like, but like these things happen. We all know of these things happening. No, what you say it's tempting the fates is Greek tragedy. It's yeah. like you learn your fate and try to avoid it, and that's how you seal it. It, I just, I feel uneasy, but I'm, but I've been like tempering my expectations. This is a completely out of pocket situation we're in because of COVID and the shutdown and the bubble. Do you think this season is a waste if the Nuggets lose to the Jazz in the first round? I think it it's definitely not I don't know that it's a waste, but you don't get any of the benefits of playing in the playoffs if you can't figure out a way to win this series. Mm. Like you learn lessons in every playoff series. I think especially the series that you win because those are the series you can build off of. Um and I think that it is a loss because you're going to lose the experience of having these guys, especially Porter, who this is his first playoff s- series. The guys from last year, they, I guess they know how to win a playoff series. They basically almost blew the spurt series. Like, are we sure they know how to win a playoff series? Yeah, that's they tried their hardest to lose the only one they've won. <laughs> um, but I do think, like, the experience you get from winning this far outweighs just, like, the, like, it doesn't really matter aspect of this. It's also, like, the neutral site thing is weird because you're not going to get, like, the home court advantage, which is heavy for the Nuggets. Yeah, but well, you except also for the Jazz. On the like, road. Yeah. Except against the Jazz. Yeah. Which, haha, they're only at 4,000 feet. We're at 5,000. <laughs> um, but I, for me, I just want to see Murray have a consistent mm-hmm. series, even if they lose. Of course, I'll be upset, but it would be late August, and so that's a weird time to be depressed about the Nuggets anyway. So for me, I'm just I'm looking to see if Porter can have some consistency, Murray have con- some consistency. That's what I would want to take into next season, but preferably take into the next 
playoff series against likely, I think, the Clippers or the Lakers. Yeah, and I think, you know, the it would be the Clippers as long as they stay in the three. So that'll mm, yeah. be the next next matchup. Speaking of things that people like to see, uh, the Colorado Rockies are in first place in the West. Yeah, Despite buddy. having lost three out of their last four games and losing their first series of the season to Arizona in a, eight, a seventh inning meltdown yesterday where they gave up eight runs. Which was after their, what, sixth inning meltdown, or ninth inning meltdown um, the night before. Yeah. They still were barely able to win. Um, Arenado had two home runs in the game yesterday, so hoping he's going to start turning a corner. They're still home for another series and then have a home-and-home against the Houston Astros, which everywhere the Astros go, controversy follows them. They've caused two suspensions so far, including one of their own players. So it'll be interesting to see. I wanted to talk briefly just about Charlie Blackman, something to watch, and it's interesting to have something to watch uh, history-wise. Charlie Blackman threw 17 games, so through Tuesday night, was hitting 500. One of five players in the last 50 seasons to hit uh, 500 through 17 games, including Larry Walker and Barry Bonds. The number he's chasing right now is 400. No one has hit 400 in baseball since Ted Williams in 1941. Now, of course, the season was over 150 games then, and we all know this would be an asterisk. But even just the fact that he has a chance, he's almost a third of the way through the season, it's interesting, and it's just like a fun thing, especially for such a, a like staple of the Rockies now in Charlie Blackman to have that to watch the next few weeks. Well, yeah, and especially because he, his first series against the Texas Rangers, I think he was like one for one for fifteen or something. Mm-hmm. That it was really a question. He had coronavirus, and I think he was one of the symptomatic cases, so people were worried that. Um, that now he's past 30, that he was on the decline. But the dude is just a smart batter. He's not raking the ball every time, but he's just either patient in the box or just getting those hits. And I think he's leading the league in RBIs right now, too, over 20. It It's so nice to have consistency from, especially a Rockies batter, but a guy that, you want to be able to root for uh, after so many seasons. So the Rockies, um, after this weekend series, will have gotten a third of the way through the season. They have two-thirds left. Unfortunately, 10 of those games, 10 of the remaining 40 games will be against the Dodgers. So the test is still uh, hotly up there. They're also The Padres are also one game behind them. They still have seven games against them. So... Basically, a third of the season is still against the two teams you're competing for for those top two spots Uh in the division to get into the playoffs. Moving on to the smoldering remains of college football. (laughs) Uh, We mentioned it last week that the Colorado State Rams were under investigation for how they were handling their COVID practices, and it just got worse and worse as the week went on. They're now under investigation for a toxic culture within the athletic department that includes uh, verbal abuse and racism, maybe. Um, this all came out in the Colorado and highly recommended that story, all sort of focusing around athletic director Joe Parker and the decisions that he's made, going back to basketball co- coach Larry Eustacey, who was fired for being abusive verbally towards his players, 
um, and throwing stuff. He was all over the place. Apparently, he had a handler that wasn't a very good handler, like within the athletic department. That's how how out of control that situation was. Mike Bobo was accused of this. There were people named on and off the record, former coach of the Rams and current coach, the guy that just loves being a dude, Steve Adazio and his staff also being thrown through the mud. So before the current coach who has yet to be able yeah. to coach. <laughs> coach only in that he is head of practices, <laughs> um, but no more. Uh, Colorado State announced that they were suspending all operations within the football team as they investigated this. They have an outside investigator, but the Mountain West has now called it quits on the fall football season. Not alone, the uh, Big Ten and Pac-12 also will not be playing football in the fall. Right now we have the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 going it alone. Dabo Sweeney of Clemson saying that it really doesn't devalue any championship they're going to win. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just... They weren't going to be playing Big Ten or Pac-12 yeah. schools anyway, so... It's just, you know, sort of madness. There's uh, threats of a union from the players, there's threats of lawsuits from players that play, like class action lawsuits that could bankrupt conferences and universities. It is unlike anything we've ever seen, and college football has not been a stable entity over the last 10 years. It's been a stable entity only because fans, to our shame and credit, can compartmentalize all the BS really well because mm -hmm. we just like waking up on crisp fall Saturdays and watching like 10 hours of football from teams we don't actually care about, but it that has been such a good thing. But I saw a tweet that was really striking. It's like, this is just revealing that a lot of schools are actually just football teams that offer classes as a side hustle. That f football is such an engine. Even for a team like CSU that has never been that good. They're not selling merch out the wazoo. They don't have nationally televised games. But the football team is so important to revenue <laughs> that they are like a corrupt Belarusian dictatorship in terms of aggression and silence. Yeah, I mean, people go to these schools for the football experience. So, like, it's not just like, you know, most of the money that the football team technically makes is in the athletic department. But when you think about the money it brings into the town, how it gets people to get tuition, all of this. And it just doesn't, like, the system doesn't make any sense. Like, if you step back and think about it, you're like, the most prestigious higher education places in the country are ruled by amateur sports. Yeah. Like it it's just a it's a system that just is so out of control. Um and no real clear path for how any of this is going to end. How the SEC which would probably try to have fans because they're trying to have fans already in MLS, like the only thing they can have fans in, they're like we're going to do fans. <laughs> well, uh, tennis MLS has the benefit of always being socially distant yeah. because so few people care about MLS. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to say what's going to happen. It'll be interesting to see if any of these conferences make it to kick off in a little over a month because they've all moved it back a little bit. Uh, from a CU football perspective, obviously they were at a huge disadvantage, losing their coach right before uh, spring practices would have started, getting Carl Durrell. Uh, it was going to be a rough year as it is. In some ways, this buys them time to figure things out. But... 
I mean, it's hard, but as you know, my position is, in some ways, I would be okay if CU got rid of football just to save me from the heartache and all of the moral quandaries of, like, what are we doing to these kids? But also just, like, being so ingrained as a buff. Like, it's, like, the most, like, identity team that I have, even though they're terrible. Yeah, well, that's, that's such a tough thing. Like, losing Mel Tucker in January, was it? Or I think February, February, yeah. And that betrayal and just being like, why can't the buffs catch a break? Only then to get a larger picture of everything. It's like, oh, no one catches a break. Some people catch corona. Um, <laughs> it, and then also thinking about the NCAA tournament where the buffs were going to be a decent seed, even though they absolutely limped into. Yeah, in basketball. In basketball. Um, there's, yeah, it really is just like a lot of misery and stress. I I think so. The basketball has also been put on hold for the fall. No Pac-12 sports in the fall. Tad Boyle's pretty mad about this decision because he's, as he pointed out, they don't start playing basketball until November. So you're saying basically like it won't be fine in November, it will be fine in January. Which, I mean, we all know that it's probably not going to be fine in January. But I, I get his point, and McKinley Wright announced last week that he was going to come back for his senior year instead of trying to go into the NFL draft or the NHL draft, NBA draft, <laughs> <laughs> the third one. Um, so it is, I mean, to that part, it's disappointing because they have the talent still the Buffs do to compete, and we know it's cyclical because the players turn over. I do want to also say before we sign off that I've been having a really hard time with the uncertainty of the sports scheduling. Like, one of the things about sports is it runs like clockwork. We know when seasons start. We know when playoffs start. We usually know when games are going to be. The Avs are playing at noon and 1 p.m. on Saturday, and we have no times for the rest of their week. The Nuggets' time for the game on Friday just got announced yesterday, and we don't know when they're playing next week. They could play at 10 a.m. on Monday. They could play at 10 p.m. on Tuesday. We have no <laughs> idea. Like, it is, it is very hard for something that is sort of about stability playing within the rules to not know what's going on and covid actually canceling sports just like increases that anxiety for me yeah it's it's sort of a novelty especially as like life is slowed down for us regular folks that i do have time to watch a basketball game at 2 p.m but it all sports right now have come back but their ratings are um lower than expected and of course it's easy to point to politics and everything else but it really one solid argument especially for NBA is that there's no fans and despite everything that they've done to add the atmosphere Mm -hmm. it's super weird to watch a game in the mid-afternoon and feel like that's supposed to matter yeah for playoffs I think it's certainly going to be more prime time but it but they only have two courts, so they yeah. there is some, like, especially this first round. I mean, that's what happened in the NHL. They have, you know, two sheets of ice in two different places. One game goes five overtimes. They have to move the other game to the next day because they no longer have time to get the ice ready at a reasonable, like, even not reasonable hour. 10.30 is not a reasonable time to start a hockey game. No, not at all. And well, we're so lucky in the mountain region that we never have crazy schedules, but for... NHL fans, like East Coast NHL fans, watching their team in Edmonton at like 10.30 at night. It's tough, but it 
for those of us who knew that we were going to take whatever scraps we can get, whether it's rugby or bowling, to actually have sports we've actually committed our <laughs> hearts and souls to, I'm willing to wake up at 3 in the morning. Shout out to, like, Denver Nuggets fans in Serbia who have always had this weird schedule. We're just getting a small taste of it. Well, as I mentioned, lots of playoff games next week between the Avs and the Nuggets. So we'll, we'll be back to cover it all. I'm Derek. I'm Quinn. See ya.